guys. Welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti. And today's episode is actually part one in a two-part Thick and Thin series of sorts, which I'll get into in a few moments. You guys are definitely going to love this subject matter. Okay, so let's just get into it. I usually avoid New York Post articles since they're known to be like clickbaity and like very dramatic and like a lot of times just... like dirty journalism. I don't know. Just like based on the few that I've seen, I just tend to avoid them. But this was one title that I just could not ignore. It was huge and bold on my newsfeed a few weeks ago. And it was like a car crash. Like I just could not look away. And the title was NYC singles ready for, quote, slutty summer of casual sex as COVID-19 vaccinations rise. And I want to read you guys a little excerpt of this article. I'll have the full thing linked if you guys want to read the full thing, uh, which I did. But here's an excerpt. So it says, quote, some have dubbed it slutty summer or the whoring 20s. Others have proclaimed that we're in for a shot girl summer inspired by the viral Megan Thee Stallion song, Hot Girl Summer. No matter what you call it, 1967's Summer of Love isn't going to have anything on 2021, with all New Yorkers over 16 eligible to be vaccinated in bars and restaurants opening. City dwellers have one thing planned for this summer, getting it on. (laughs) So anyway, uh, Carrie Bradshaw is somewhere like rolling in her grave. I feel like she... Maybe, okay, I don't know like what modern Carrie Bradshaw would be up to in terms of like reporting these days, but... I don't know. My group chat had a lengthy conversation about this article, mostly sarcastic comments about it, mostly like just humored by it all. Some of us were like, my one friend, Colby, her older sister, who's like been married forever, was like, I'm so jealous. You girls are going to have the best summer. But we're all just kind of like laughing about it, kind of mostly terrified of it all, honestly, like just the general like craziness that's like about to ensue. It feels like the calm before the storm as people are still getting vaccinated. I actually got my second dose of the vaccine. When was it? Two days ago. So I'm finally like feeling better. I was feeling not great yesterday, but I feel fully great today, like 48 hours, or I guess maybe more than 48 hours later now, but I felt great at like 36 hours after my second shot of Moderna. So anyway, you know, people are getting vaccinated fully. I still have two weeks until I'm like fully, fully. Um, but once that happens, like once the city opens again, I believe de Blasio, so that's mayor said, um, mayor of New York said that July 1st is the opening date, like the reopening of New York kind of officially. So July 1st is about to be a total crazy fest. And I'm just not sure if I'm ready. But anyway, so I read the article and I felt kind of this weird like sinking feeling in my stomach because like granted, guys, I'm not going to lie to you and say I've never had casual sex. Like I definitely have. And I've definitely viewed some relationships as like super casual and I was fine with it. Like college especially and like my first year and a half here, I was like all over the place, like casual, casual with like everyone I was seeing. But Something about this article just kind of like struck a nerve. I was like, well, what if I don't want casual sex like all summer? Like what if I'm looking for something a bit more serious? Like what if I want to go on dates? I don't want to meet people like fully spontaneously all the time, like in terms of like meeting them, going home with them. Like I don't want to do that. I want to have like dinner dates set and I want to be like, we're going to meet up on this day at this time, which I guess you can get from like a spontaneous meet. I don't know. 
I don't know what I want. All I know is this article like kind of scared me a little bit. And I don't know if I'm the only one that felt that way. I'm sure a lot of people were like, yes, let's go. Like so excited. But I was like, oh my God, this is going to be a thing. So I naturally just like stopped everything else I was doing in my workday once I saw this article to go on Hinge, go on a dating app, peruse the scene, see what was going on. And I was just like scrolling, looking at these guys' profiles, which ultimately what I'm looking at on each of their profiles is what they want me to see. You know, you set up your profile on a dating app for others to essentially draw conclusions from what you're putting out there. So Like, oh, okay, he has a fish in his profile. He's so capable, strong, outdoorsy. He can provide for me. Like, (laughs) I mean, obviously they miss the mark with the conclusion drawing, sending signals sometimes. Like, obviously we've discussed in the podcast before, maybe holding a fish in your photo isn't the move for all people. Some people love that. Not for all people, though. Uh, You got to read the room. But I couldn't help but think, though, about how – my parents met. Like while I was scrolling, this is like my thought process, guys. Like I was like, wow, okay, dating apps. X, 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 X. Don't want any of you guys that you all seem like you just want something I don't want, you know? And then I was thinking about how my parents met, which was a super organic, meet cute, a genuine one. You know, I did a whole episode on this, not like a whoring 20s frenzy scenario, but dating apps, as we know them, were nowhere to be found when my parents met in the 80s. So like, where did they come from? I was, you know, thinking to myself, because I obviously know the story. I mean, not obviously, not everyone knows this story, but there's a lot of podcasts out there about the Bumble founder and the Tinder founders and like people who have created these more modern dating apps. But I was like, well, where did they like really come from? Like who was the first person to be like, let's use technology to match people. So naturally, I did some digging and today we're going to talk about it. Where do they come from? I will answer this for you. And so I've actually felt compelled to make a two-part series about dating apps. So this is part one of the series. I'll share three stories from dating apps, humble beginnings today. Not the entire history, like I said, but just some like big stories that I've never heard before. And that would ultimately give way to what we have now. So these are stories from like the 50s. And then the second part of the episode, so next week's episode, we'll explore the psychology behind online dating, the anxieties that brew before a first date when you have the entire internet to explore and like, you know, thoroughly vet the person via Google and LinkedIn and finding their lacrosse highlights from middle school and all this stuff. Like how can it really make us more anxious? Like, you know, because back in the day before when, you know, people were set up on these like blind dates or they found people from the newspaper, like the the personal ads and things like that, you know, it was definitely more faceless. It wasn't so, you didn't have so much information at your fingertips. You kind of had to just wing it. Whereas now it almost causes us more stress that we have more resources and more ways to stalk the person before we go on the date. So I'm going to talk about all that next week, but this week we're going to talk about where dating apps came from, where technology meets love began, the humble beginnings, okay? So let's get into it. But before we dive into the history of online dating, I do want to kick things off with a reminder of another time in history, a little further back in time. So obviously, For many, 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 many centuries, people were matched by family as business arrangements. We know this. And even if, you know, some love was involved and there was some romance, some courting, all the things, 
it really still was to some extent a family affair based on your socioeconomic or class standing, based on where you lived, you know, things like that. It was kind of hard for you to date outside or dating. I mean, it was like more courting, I guess, outside your respective realm. Not to mention once you were hitched, there really was no going back, like not really an option to divorce in most places, at least in the Western world. If your husband, like if he passed away at war or from natural causes or even decided to leave you for another milkmaid somewhere, you were instantly widowed and left in this like cloud of shame to just live on your days without love really. Or I guess if you did it, it was like in secret. Also, if you were deemed unfit for marriage, which some women ultimately were deemed unfit for various reasons, you know, you were also left in this cloud of similar shame. So what was a hopeless, hopeless romantic, hopelessly single gal to do in these early days? Well, today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. One woman in Manchester in the year 1727 took things into her own hands. Helen Morrison placed a personal advertisement looking for love in the Manchester Weekly Journal. This had never been done before. And in the advertisement, she essentially was marketing herself as a single and ready to mingle woman, seeking a man, etc. More details. But this was in 1727, where women did not do such things. It was tacky. And, you know, to no one's surprise, at the time, Helen was actually deemed crazy and she was sent to an asylum. But this naturally did, though, cause some curious people's ears to perk up a little bit. They're like, okay, you know, Helen was crazy, but she's kind of on to something. Is it okay? Or can it be okay? Should it be okay to advertise the fact that you're single? deliberately and publicly show off the best parts of yourself in hopes that it will attract a suitor that is looking for such qualities in their significant other. So unfortunately for Helen, but fortunately for other singles, personal ads became more frequent in the 1800s. 
Most people, though, were careful to omit their names and send them in anonymously, work with the the newspaper to figure out who their match was, things like that. Do it a little bit more incognito so they weren't like publicly aired like that, but still were able to put themselves out there. And some of the ads were actually purchased by men. So this one I actually found while I was researching, and I'll have the source linked in my show notes, but it was sent by a man who saw a woman out and about and never got her name but wished that he had. So it ran in the General Advertiser in March of 1748 and concerned a, quote, lady genteelly dressed, seen leading a string of beautiful stone horses through Edmonton, Tottenham, and Newington. This is to acquaint her that if she is disengaged and inclinable to marry, a gentleman who is on that occasion is desirous of making honorable proposals to her, in which state, if he be not so happy as to please, he will readily purchase the whole string for her satisfaction. So basically what he's saying here in all the fancy flowery terms, like he is into this lady that he saw leading some horses through these towns and he wants to marry her. But even if she's not willing to marry him, like if he's not fit for her, he'll just buy all her horses, basically, which is what I'm getting from this. So (laughs) interesting. Basically, personal ads became a thing. So it wasn't a new concept at all when dating apps first started to come out that people wanted to get out of their limited circles. It's been happening for years now that people just want to find a way out of what they are given and see what else could possibly be out there for them. You know, these people didn't want to give up on love just because they're in their current circumstances. They wanted to see what could be out there. So let's take ourselves a little bit further in the future from where we just were, but still back in time to 1959. So our story about the very humble beginnings of online dating actually began with failure. Yes, virtual dating had a lot of kinks to get worked out before it became what it is today, which honestly, not too surprising. A lot of modern inventions had a lot of kinks. You know, online dating was not without kinks. So I did not mean that in like a sexual way, but okay. Anyway. (laughs) Okay. So another fun fact, who knew that online dating got its start in the realm of mathematics? Yes, you heard me right. By far, my least favorite subject in school mathematics had a hand in inspiring online matchmaking. In 1959, Philip Filer and James Harvey were students in a computer course called Math 139, Theory and Operation of Computing Machines at Stanford University. Mind you, the first mainframe computer, which was large enough to take up an entire room and was largely used for like large-scale things like war efforts, had only come out in 1944. So not too long you know, prior to this class being a thing. And so also, you know, even further, personal computers like the one that I'm using to record this podcast right now weren't released in their primitive form until the 70s. So when Philip and James took this math class in 1959, they were some of the first students to really experience a computer. And it must have been super foreign to them. So for their final project in this class... James and Philip had to create and present a computer project. 
So they had to come up with it themselves, do all the work, present it to the class, that sort of thing. And you know, to help them, they would be able to have limited access to Stanford's brand spanking new IBM 650 computer for the project. So the IBM 650 was the first mass-produced computer in the world, and only 2,000 of them were ever produced. And I googled pictures of this thing, and it looks very similar to kind of a small kitchen setup in size. At first, when I saw the photos, I thought these people were sitting in front of a a refrigerator with like a cabinet set up next to them. That's how large this thing was. Anyway, Philip and James were granted limited access to this computer to work on their final project. And like I said, they were able to choose any subject they wanted. And what did they choose? Matchmaking with a computer. And this honestly makes sense if you knew Philip and James. These two guys had hosted parties in houses that they rented with several of their friends who studied electrical engineering and were part of the radio station club. So they had a close-knit group that threw parties all the time. And naturally, as they were college guys, they often invited some female student nurses from the Veterans Administration Psychiatric Hospital to their little parties. This is a funny detail also. So as a collective bunch, these guys all introduced themselves to the girls that they met, saying they were the, quote, Stanford Research Institute Junior Engineers Social Club, which was not true, but also wasn't like a total lie, since one of the housemates did work summers and part-time as a junior engineer at the institute, but they essentially just like presented themselves as this like elite club when they were just like a hodgepodge of, you know, engineer majors and radio station guys. Anyway, just guys have been lying about their jobs since the beginning of time, it seems. Anyway, so the guys took inspiration from these co-ed parties they were throwing and the matchmaking between the nurses and the quote engineers. And they probably figured that a computer could match people much better than flawed humans, you know, socially awkward humans could. So according to Computers in Love, Stanford and the first trials of computer date matching by C. Stuart Gilmore, the guys wrote a program with the IBM 650 to measure the differences in respondents' answers to a questionnaire using punch cards. So a, quote, difference score was then computed for each possible male-female pair, therefore matching those with the most similar results. And they called this project Marriage Planning Service. So for a bigger pool, the guys not only used their classmates as guinea pigs to fill out these punch cards, but also some of their random neighbors from their housing complex. They probably wanted a diverse pool, so they distributed questionnaires to about 100 people. But as this was a class project, James and Philip were limited to five or 10 minutes on the computer at a time because there's obviously other students that needed to use it. And so they initially were only able to run the punch cards for just 10 couples, but they were super determined to match more than just 10 couples. So with their lock picking skills, James and Philip returned to the lab late one night without anyone knowing and ran the data for the rest of the questionnaires. So they were able to match a total of 49 couples. But naturally, they hit a snag. As I said at the top of the episode, the two were not extremely successful with the results of their project, and there's a few reasons for this. So after they matched up each couple or were able to determine who were the best matches, things like that, the dates met up at a party hosted by the guys at their house. So first of all, why does this sound like the plot of a murder novel? 
like match all these people, bring them to your house like late one night. And like, I don't even know. I've been watching way too much Criminal Minds. If you guys listened to last week's episode, you guys know I'm on a total kick right now. But anyway, or honestly, it sounds also like a college party theme, which personally, so I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I was social chair in my sorority um, in college. So I essentially was in charge of coming up with party themes and like mixers and things like that registered and unregistered because, you know, college. So one of the themes that I came up with, well, I can't take full credit because a girl in my sorority, her like sister had done it at this other school, but like we kind of changed it a bit. So essentially it was called guy and a tie. And essentially how it went was like we worked with guys to matchmake in a way. So like the girl groups, the girl friend group, like the girl senior class, the guy senior classes from other fraternities, like we would like kind of work together to pick dates, but the guy and the girl would not know who their date was until they got to the party. So it was like kind of complicated. And as social chair, I had to do a lot of like back end work to make this happen. But essentially a girl would be given this tie by a, you know, a mysterious subject. Well, the guy wouldn't even know that his tie was going to this said girl. I hope you're keeping up with this. So essentially, it was kind of up to the friends to figure this out for each girl. So things got messy, but essentially the girl would show up to the party wearing the tie and the guy would have to find his tie. But obviously there were some issues because like guys have very similar ties slash like the same ties. So anyway, it was definitely like it was it was supposed to be better than it was, but like still was fun nonetheless. I made this like banner and it said a little party, but P-A-R-T-I-E, never killed nobody. People had a great time, although obviously it was kind of like a shit show trying to figure out who was going with who. But, you know, I kind of tried my hands at matchmaking, guys. So I, I fit into this, this story very well. But anyway, so back to our actual story. So all of the matches that these Stanford guys came up with met up at this party, and for many reasons, I'll discuss several of them, none of the matches resulted in sparks or marriage, which was ultimately the the plan of marriage planning service. So the first reason, the guys were assuming that people would fall in love with one another, you know, instantly based on similarities alone. So it really only examined similarities, which as we know, isn't all that goes into falling for someone and like being compatible with someone. There's like, you know, sometimes you can be totally different from your significant other. So that was the first snag. Also, at this time, it was just such a a foreign concept to so many people that you could be matched with a total stranger, not people in your existing socioeconomic circle or friend circle or like a friend of a friend. Like these were total strangers for the most part. So it was a very strange concept that these people probably weren't all that accepting of at the time. Also, the computer actually ended up, you know, there was some issues. So, well, I mean, okay, this was like bound to happen, but the computer accidentally matched a freshman at Stanford with a divorcee that had two kids that lived in the guy's housing complex. So that clearly was not a great match. It probably was a super awkward meeting. But yeah, they they tried their best. And James actually went on to work in aerospace engineering, and he's been interviewed a bunch on this college experiment from 1959. Like there's a bunch of videos of him being interviewed about this. Like he was very happy to talk about it on camera. He said in one interview, I wish I could have had the foresight 
he said, maybe I would have been a Google or something. Like he probably thought that given this, this, you know, problem solving and this trying to break the barriers, like maybe he would have invented Google. And they certainly were in a similar headspace, though, these two guys as Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who were the founders of Google in 98. Um, they actually also went to the same school. They all went to Stanford. However, James and Philip's work was not in vain because right after they they did this and, you know, went on to their own respective fields and whatever, a slew of other researchers of various ages and skill levels would attempt very similar social experiments and it would lead to what we have today. So I want to tell you guys about something that happened a few years after these two guys did their experiment. So this was in the spring of 1965 when two other college students, very similar to James and Philip over at Stanford, had just had enough with the social and dating scene around their Harvard campus. So for clarification, guys, Harvard wasn't fully co-ed, meaning both girls and guys, until 1999. So to attend co-ed mixers, sometimes Harvard kids would have to travel like hours upon hours just for them to come up empty-handed with no luck romantically. So this was 1965 in the spring. And Harvard classmates Jeffrey Tarr and Von Morrill III wanted to come up with a solution to this problem, very similar to the two guys at Stanford. They wanted to find a way to automatically weed out people who were, quote, not appropriate for each other, which is kind of a not cute way of saying, like, let's match people up. It's like, okay, let's find out who are the weird ones and like who doesn't match and like whatever. I digress. So (laughs) Jeff and Vaughn started Operation Match, which bears striking resemblance to marriage planning service, except a bit more modern in its ideals, and you'll see why. So Vaughn, for whatever reason, actually ended up dropping out of Harvard soon after they came up with the idea. But Jeffrey, who majored in mathematics, was determined to get it off the ground. He actually ended up hiring a, quote, more or less homeless Cornell University dropout named Douglas H. Ginsburg. And a fun fact, Ginsburg would later enroll in Harvard Law School and then become nominated to the Supreme Court. So just a fun fact. But before... He started in the dating realm. (laughs) So Jeffrey also got his chemistry major roommate, David Crump, in on the experiment. So the three of them, Jeffrey, Douglas, and David, managed this thing called Compatibility Research, Inc., which was Operation Match's parent corporation. So they created all of this from like from college, basically. And to be entered in Operation Match, like this whole concept – These subjects, so guys and girls, filled out a paper survey answering 75 questions about themselves and then the same 75 questions about their date's ideal characteristics. So differently from marriage planning service, the one over at Stanford, it was actually okay to have different answers from your ideal date and your match, so to speak. So you didn't have to line up and be perfectly in sync in your answers because obviously that's just not how things typically go anyway. So basically the participants would then mail their answer sheet to Cambridge along with a $3 fee. So they charged money for this, which, so $3 actually equates to about $25 today. So these guys were making a profit from this and their answers would be recorded on punch cards. So similar to Stanford and be run through a room-sized IBM 1401. So it's another similar to Stanford moment. And then three weeks later, the hopeful students would receive a sheet of paper with the names and contact info of their top six matches. So more than just one match, you got six chances to strike gold. 
And I found this article from the New York Times in the 80s that said the questions weren't aimed at finding marriage. They were actually, you know, more so aiming towards nailing down a decent date. So not necessarily a life partner. It was definitely more loose. And one of the questions that was actually involved in the survey was, quote, is extensive sexual activity in preparation for marriage part of, quote, growing up? So basically, the founders kind of sat down together and they thought about their own dating wants, needs, desires, and wrote the questions themselves. So they weren't scientifically generated or really too thought out. It was kind of more so like what they cared about. So, you know, some even had to do with height, SAT score, things like that. And one question that was actually apparently thrown out had to do with their ideal partner's bra size which just tells you all you need to know about these guys. So once the questions had been finalized, it took about, I think, two weeks for them to finalize the questions, the guys had to find a way to get the word out about their survey. So they called up the local school newspapers in the area and around as far as they could find and offered them a 10% commission to advertise Operation Match. So coming up with the matches actually became a full-time job for these guys, basically, while they were also trying to complete school. So it was definitely a lot because by the spring semester of Jeffrey's senior year, they had gotten around 100,000 applicants, which is a crazy number. So naturally, you know, people got word of this. They figured it out. There were many competitors that sprung up and historic events, conflict, etc., just got in the way of their invention, got in the way of love and business. And Jeffrey said this, he said, quote, because of the Vietnam War, if I had dropped out of college to focus on the company, I would have probably been drafted. So we sold it in two pieces for very little money. So even though Operation Match was very short-lived, you know, they still achieved their goal, at least for the founders. So David said, so David was one of the founders, he said, we were able to have a lot of great sexual experiences out of this. You know, we were college guys. So naturally, they definitely um, gained some social notoriety for this, some social clout on campus. You know, I'm sure a lot of the girls in the neighboring schools were very keen on meeting these guys that had done this and like, whatever, they probably got a little clout from this. But also I just like maybe, you know, jump into conclusions here, but I feel like if I was in this guy's position and, or these guys, I guess, plural, and I had like this power at my fingertips, I mean, not saying I would do it, but you know, I'm just putting myself in a 20-something college guy's perspective, knowing a lot of them. I feel like one or two of them have had to have rigged the system at one point, you know, been like, oh, a really cute girl like submitted her information. Oh, yeah, you're you're totally matched with me. Like, oh, I'm going to give you my number because we're perfectly matched. Like, I feel like the guys could definitely like take their pick and maybe make a little extra cash matching like, you know, random guy on campus that's like, hey, like I'll pay you 20 bucks if you match me with this girl and say it was the the experiment and say it was like scientifically based. Like I can so see this being a thing. And also I feel like this would be an incredible concept for a movie. So if anyone out there is a screenplay writer, give me some credit for this. I feel like this could be a really great movie concept or TV show concept or something like that. But anyway, yeah, so that is uh, Operation Match. So obviously a bit different from Marriage Planning Service. I mean, if you're really stacking them both next to each other, the Stanford experiment and the Harvard experiment, so Marriage Planning Service and Operation Match over at Harvard, I feel like, you know, Marriage Planning Service, it literally says it in the name. It was definitely more 
gearing towards marriage and like on the conservative end of things, a bit more like, you know, wanting something to be lasting and, you know, making a, a family out of it and things like that. Whereas Operation Match was essentially more for, I guess, hooking up and like going on dates and like exploring and being 20 and alive and all those things. So definitely just two different vibes, kind of like a Christian mingle and a Tinder, <laughs> not, you know, ripping on Tinder. Tinder can definitely be for serious things, but maybe more of like a grinder. Either way, both concepts definitely have led us to where we are today with Tinder, Hinge, Bumble, Raya, and the like. There's like all these ones now. There's like Locks Club for Jewish uh, people and like all these different things now. Like I've just heard of all these different ones popping up. There's like, what is it? Like gluten-free singles or something. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so I want to pose a question before I conclude part one of our little two-part series on whatever this concept is. So you know, dating apps evolution and dating apps um, humble beginnings. So this is the question. Do we go on dates expecting marriage? Like do we go on dates in hopes that this will be our life partner or maybe not even in hopes but like just wondering or like do we do we think about that? Like I certainly do often but maybe not all the time. But generally speaking, like are we dating for marriage Or sometimes do we date just to date? Does it differ? Can it be possible to date just to date? Like even sometimes when I'm like, okay, I'm going on this date because it's a friend of a friend and like they set us up and I feel obligated kind of to go because it's a friend of a friend and, you know, I want to make them happy, but also like, what do I have to lose? Like I consider like, okay, really, what do I have to lose? What if it's a great time? Like who knows? Free drinks, things like that, (laughs) which I mean, it's bad, but whatever, it's true. So you know, sometimes when I'm going on those dates though, I still, it still crosses my mind like, oh, well, what if this is my husband? Like it always crosses my mind. But I'm wondering like, does that, is that something that everyone feels? Like are we dating for marriage? Like what if this person ends up being just a really great friend? Like this has happened to people that I know. And in that case was the date just an interview, okay? To see if it would be friendship or something more. Like was I dating for marriage or was I dating for like, who knows? Dating for question mark, you know, question mark at the end of the sentence and or a little space there. So yeah, do we date as an interview <laughs> or for marriage before we, you know, do who knows what? Like, or do we date as an interview before we potentially sleep with the person and just move on? Like, perhaps it's a way also just for us to boost our confidence. Like, why? Why do we date? What is it really? What's the purpose of it? You know, ultimately, and oh really, it's exhausting. (laughs) So yeah, guys, that is it for part one of this series. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I hope it gave you guys some food for thought. I've really enjoyed reading a lot of your DMs you've been sending me about this concept because ever since I asked you guys just to put some feelers out today, I asked you guys on Instagram, like how many of you guys have gone on dating apps, like who has a dating app profile, who has gone on dates because of it, or who hasn't gone on any dates but has a profile. And it was pretty much like a 75-25 split on that one. So, you know, the people that have dating apps is about 75% of people have dating apps, at least my followers. And then the follow-up question, so from that, how many people have actually gone on a date period from having a dating app? And it was about 75% of people have gone on a date. 25% are just kind of there 
you know, scroll and perusing. And there, I have a few friends, like very good friends that have never been on a hinge date and yet are on hinge all the time. Totally fine. I think that it's good, honestly, just for kind of like research purposes to see who's out there and also just to get your feet wet. You know, even in a small way, if you just don't have the confidence or are nervous or are COVID conscious, which is totally fine. So yeah, I mean, it was just interesting hearing your stories. How many of you guys have met your significant others on dating apps, like your your fiancés, your, your soon-to-be betrothed? Like, it's really, really interesting. It definitely gives me the confidence to try it out again because I have to say, I feel like the pool has been pretty dry recently because, you know, I was kind of fearing that the reason was, like on dating apps especially, I feel like people are gearing up for this crazy summer and maybe they they don't want to be going on dates right now because like they should save themselves for the crazy summer. Like I just, I I don't know. I can't get myself thinking about that because it just makes me anxious. So (laughs) anyway, I'm going to stop talking about this. I'm going to go see what's in my fridge. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode of the pod and I will talk to you guys all next Thursday. Bye. (laughs) 